Church family, um, it is my honor and privilege. Many of you know, and those of you that don't know, I'll, I'll just bring it to speed very quickly. We are in the process of uh, prayerfully pursuing a partnership with Charleston Bilingual Academy that is currently at Friendship, and they're looking to expand and grow. And so with that, one of the things that we want to do is we want to have Dr. Nate Johnson before you so that you get to know him more and, and hear from him and, and build that relationship further more and more between our church and the school. Uh, Dr. Nate Johnson is um, uh, the, what's your official title with the headmaster? Headmaster, that's what I thought. All right. Man of all traits uh, at Charleston Bilingual, but um, I'll let him share a little bit about his story, but um, he's also one of the elders at Friendship Baptist, our, our dear sister church here in the area. And so we are very excited to have him with us today. So if you would, would you please give him a, a warm welcome? I am absolutely blessed with that worship music. Um, so Christ-centered. Those words, so selfless, so generous. Do, do, we, do we think about God that way? Right? Do we, when we're in the middle of our trials, do we see him as selfless and generous or as miserly and frugal? Right? Um, would you guys mind turning me down just a little bit because I already get loud myself. <laughs> that could be dangerous. Um. You guys have been studying Acts, and you're, you're up to chapter 7, and um, I'd like to tie in what's on my heart, and really what I'd love to share, every, almost every time a parent comes to our school to visit the school, they're going to get the gospel, and it's going to be a very triune God-centric gospel, and I, I want to share that with you guys today, that we could worship who he is together, and I want to share it within the context of where you've been in Acts. I'd like to start by reading from Philippians 3, and I'm going to use that to pray again, so feel free if you want to just close your eyes and use this scripture to usher us into the presence. This is Apostle Paul. Whatever things were gained to me, so those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, trash, so that I may gain Christ. I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I haven't already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Lord, I, I, I just, that scripture, Jesus, creates a 
a renewed battle between my flesh and my spirit. My spirit says amen, and my flesh detests what I just heard. The gospel is this place where I am crucified with Christ, that Christ might live. And my spirit says, yes, that's what I've been made for. My flesh says, no, that's my death. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would accompany our words, our meditations this morning with the power of your spirit. I pray this wouldn't be just a time where we sit and hear and leave unchanged, but this would be a a time where we encounter a deeper indwelling of God Almighty through the spirit indwelling in us. We would leave here with a greater thirst for your kingdom and your righteousness in us and through us. May this not just be a routine Sunday morning where we just come and practice Christianity. May this be a a supernatural Sunday morning where we encounter the Almighty and we leave here inspired, fired, wanting the Spirit to, to not just be in us but to explode through us. Transform us through your word, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So you're in Acts, and you, you, you see these disciples set aflame. But if you were to rewind and go back to the beginning of the Gospels, you would see these self-centered ruffians, right? How, how, how do these ruffians get to where you're now at in Acts? Six times in Acts, if you, if you look for the, the language filled by the Spirit, you're going to see that these disciples before who are filled by self are now filled by the Almighty Spirit. You know, that same Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters in Genesis 1. And wherever he hovers, life erupts, right? And you're seeing the Spirit erupting and these disciples. I love it. At one point, it's going to say that the, the, the disciples are filled with the Spirit and joy. And yet the context, as you know, is they're being persecuted. They're being squeezed. And the harder you squeeze them, the more the joy comes out. That doesn't sound like human nature. <laughs> Usually the harder we get squeezed, our anger comes out. Our quickness to give in to temptations c- comes out. Our shortness Our impatience comes out. We see these disciples squeeze and joy comes out. How did they get there? You're at a cliffhanger right now with Stephen. I mean, he's being persecuted. They're ready to stone him, and he's now preaching. He's being squeezed, and worship comes out. The words I just read from Paul, right? He was against Christ, and now he's saying, I consider everything. I want to lose everything that I might gain Christ because I think the other things I'm holding on to are keeping me from gaining more of Christ, and I want to be emptied so that I might be filled. Last night I had a chance to share with the men in our church, and I I shared a little bit about Richard Wormbrandt. Anyone heard of Richard Wormbrandt? I'll give you a quick biographical sketch. He's, he's from our century, our century being the 20th century for most of us, right? He's from our century. 
And I, I like to share that story because sometimes we can read the historical narrative of Acts and the gospel and say, well, that, that was back then. Yeah, they emptied themselves because that's what the apostles do. I think it's poignant to hear what does somebody from our century do? How do we surround ourselves with contemporary witnesses to say we, we, we've got to shed off the old man? So I, I just want to share a contemporary from the 20th century. He's born in Romania. Before World War II, Romania is not a communist country, but the Soviet Union's trying to in, in, invade it and filter it. And they actually recruit Warren Brandt to be a, a communist agent. He, he goes to Moscow, gets trained. He's a common turn. He, he's actually trying to create upheaval for the communist regime. He actually gets arrested a couple times. Gets married, has a supernatural conversion along with his wife to Jesus Christ. World War II happens. And during World War II, he's actually going to the prisons and preaching Christ. He's also doing several rescue attempts of Jewish people. After World War II, as you know, the Soviet Union gets Romania, becomes part of the Soviet bloc communist regime. They created a state church where they're silencing the gospel. Warren Brandt stands against it. And there's one day where he's walking along the side of the street, car pulls up next to him, it's a KJB, they grab him, they throw him in. He's gonna end up being in prison for 14 years over, over two sets of time. In those 14 years, he, he experiences torture, persecution, not unlike what you just read in Acts 5. They would do things like mutilate his feet. He faced solitary confinement for three years, so much so that the guards would put felt on the bottom of their shoes so he couldn't even hear sounds. They said during those three years, he would sleep during the day, be awake at night. I don't know how he kept distinguished between the two because his cell was 12 feet underground. And he would preach sermons he memorized over 350 sermons that he would preach to himself. And then he would tap them out in Morse code on the cell walls, hoping maybe somebody else would hear them. Later on, when he got out, he moved to the United States and began advocacy for the persecuted church. Acts 5 is still happening nowadays. Started an organization called the Voice of the Martyrs that has my heart. Somebody asked him, he says, what scriptures got you through solitary confinement? And he answers, no scripture got me through solitary confinement. The God of the scriptures got me through solitary confinement. And there's such a, a crucial distinction in what he just said. Because a lot of us do religion, we do church, we do scripture, and it can't stop there. Because he's saying, if the scripture doesn't begin the conversation of your relationship with the almighty God, it's religion that you're practicing, and it's not relationship that's transforming.
They said when he would later preach, he would take his shoes off because shoes hurt his feet too badly to wear them while he preached. One of his sermons, you can YouTube it, it's called The Beauty of Nothingness. I've cried a couple times when I hear it, and if you knew me, I am not a crier. But I'm imagining this contemporary from the 20th century with mangled feet. And he talks about how he became nothing. Talks about how they took his possessions, took his family. His wife was actually taken to a labor camp for three years as well. He missed his child, his children's childhood and adolescence. He talks about how they took his name. For those 14 years, he was never called Richard. He was a number. They took daylight from him. They took nightlight from him. He says, I I became nothing. Then he goes on to talk about the beauty and the power of nothingness. He gives this analogy. He says, if if God suspended planet Earth on the strongest steel cable, that steel cable would still break. And he goes on to say, he had to suspend the Earth on something stronger. So he suspended it on nothing. Our Earth right now is suspended on nothing. Because when there's nothing, that's the freedom for him then to be the everything. And the more we become nothing, the more his power can work through us. That's the secret Paul is realizing in Philippians 3. I want, my spirit wants, I want to become nothing. That the power of the resurrection might work through me. That's what Stephen's doing, where you guys are at in Acts 6 and 7. That's how those ruffians changed throughout the book of Acts. Somehow they supernaturally have been transformed from an inward people to an outward people. And somehow there's a secret that that restoration from being inward transformation to becoming outward is actually what you were designed for. And yet our flesh deceptively tells us, no, hang on to as much as what you got left. Don't consider it loss for the sake of Christ. Consider it the last little bit you got for yourself. And there's our battle this morning, right? The flesh and spirit in each of us is battling. And how do we surround ourselves with these witnesses and say, how can I let go of that flesh that I'm trying to cling on to? And how can I be freed for the spirit to outwardly move through me? So every time a family tours the school, I want to talk them through 
the four frames of the gospel, the four themes of the gospel. And our, our school's a very unique niche in that we get lots and lots and lots of families apply for the school who are unchurched. We had a really sweet moment this past week uh, where we had parents together and our principal asked, like, why, why, why are you here? And one, one mother said, I, I didn't grow, grow up with any religion. She doesn't even have the vocabulary yet to explain what's going on. And she says, I I want so badly for my child to get what I can't give him. And yet if you had rewind three years ago, she didn't come for that. (laughs) She came for this Spanish immersion piece that sounded right. It sounded like best practices academically. And now she's being surprised by this transforming gospel, and she's still looking for the words to describe it. So I'm going to talk you through these four themes. And I I would, you you might know them, you might already be articulating them, but what I'm really asking for this morning, I would ask the same thing at Friendship Baptist Church. Don't be passive. I'm not looking for you to, oh, I agree with that, I agree with that. I'm looking for you to say, would I say it like that? This afternoon when I interact with somebody, would I say it like that? I would encourage you to write some of this down. Because if you passively hear and agree with it, probably four days from now you don't remember it. And then it's not transformingly working through you. I would strongly encourage you to be a people who actively write when your pastors are preaching up here. Because if I asked you right now, what was preached three weeks ago? If you didn't write anything down, you might go, "Mm, I don't know, but it was a good message. We're not looking for agreements with good messages. We're hoping you're being transformed. Your Sunday afternoons, your Monday mornings, your daily life looks different because of what happens here. The four themes. So I would talk to a parent. We get all these parents. We do these tours, many of them unchurched. I'm talking them through the school, and I get to the point where I say, I want to talk about why we're a Christ-centered school. And I'll explain to them, the best way I can do this, I want to tell you what we believe is the main theme of the gospel. And I talk them through these four frames. I said, we first believe that God has always existed. And then the next thing I say to them, I say, if you don't remember anything else from this tour, I really hope this is what you remember. God has always existed in relationship. And I'll begin to define for them what you know as triune God. There has never been a split second of eternity past where it's been just the God the Father. That is defining for everything else in existence. If you aren't ready to articulate that, you need to take 10 seconds right now and say, from now on, I need to understand it wasn't God the Father and then Jesus and the Spirit showed up. You need to understand it's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to stop right now and I need you to program your brain on that one. Because there's quite a few religions that sound a whole lot of like Christianity, but they differ with us in this piece. Because if you believe God is a God of love, 
God is love, right? First John tells us that. If you believe God is love, the essence of love is towards another. If you ask me, what's the opposite of love? I wouldn't tell you hate first. I would say the opposite of love is selfishness. Love is this outward, so the opposite would be inward. And so for God to be essentially a loving God, he has to eternally be a relational God. And the glimpses we get of the triune God in Scripture are the summits of Mount Everest in Scriptures. When we can ever see God talking to God in Scripture, that's when we should fall face down. Who are we to hear these conversations? John 17 stands most out in my mind, right? Jesus is in the garden. He's sweating drops of blood. The crucifixion is about to happen. It's imminent. And he's praying. And somehow we get to eavesdrop on that prayer in John 17. And what you see is the son completely outward towards the father, and you hear these echoes of the father completely outward towards the son. The son saying, I, I want to glorify you. I, I want to be your words. It's your authority. I, it, it's, it's, I go to the cross for you. And this, the father's echoing back, no, I am glorifying you. No, you, no, you, no, you. Because love is completely outward. So when Jesus turns to us then and completely outwardly lays himself down for us, we shouldn't be surprised because that's who he is yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's what he's done for all eternity past, outward. So if, if, if you can imagine that's who this Triune God is defined by the relationship of three persons, one God. We mysteriously don't quite understand that. He is one. So unified, so outward, so deferring to the other, so loving, a love that's not defined by our culture that's transactional. I love you because you gave me a love that's defined by completely you. That defines triune God. So when I'm talking to parents, and you're getting the longer version, when I'm talking to parents and we're talking about the themes of the gospel, I said, first, it's God. And we need to understand who he is, defined by this triune relationship. All other reality is simply derived from who he is. Then we go to God, creation. We'll talk about Genesis 1. And you're familiar with Genesis 1. You know there are conversations in Genesis 1 where God is talking to himself. I'm going to ask you if you can pull a Bible out, whether it's on your phone or if there's a Bible on your pew, and look at Genesis 1 for a second. And I want to give you about a minute to look how many times do you see 
either God or God referred to as a pronoun in Genesis 1. God, he, we, us. Just take a minute and quickly try to count how many times you see the language of God being spoken in Genesis 1. Go. Fifteen seconds. How many times we see God referred to in Genesis one? God, He, we, us, His. I count fourteen. Anybody else count fourteen? 14 times he's referred to, and, and language is so spectacularly smelling like a triune God, right? Because sometimes it's God, sometimes it's a, a singular pronoun like his, and sometimes it's we, we create an our, us. We see this going back and forth between a, a singular and plural, and even the, the language for God is Elohim, and you've studied that in this church before, this idea of it's, all, it's a plural, plural version of LOI, but yet he's not more than one God. He's one God. So you, you see this brewing of the triune God in creation. This, this graphic behind you, I want, the, the best image I can see of it is, is a waterfall. And why I would, I would do a waterfall is because the nature of a waterfall is to overflow water. You can't, it's got too much water, it's got to overflow. So when, I, when I'm on the tour and I say, first, this is who God is, and he's erupting in love between the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's the nature then of an erupting loving God to overflow. You can't stop it. So if you say, why did God create? He couldn't help but create because he's overflowing his very nature. A waterfall can't help but to overflow water. And there's not a molecule in the universe that wasn't intentionally created by the overflow of the triune God's character. Not even the molecules hundreds of thousands of light years away from us. There's nothing capriciously made in creation. Everything is specifically, intentionally, purposefully created as an overflow of him. All the way to every hair on your head. Creation is the overflow of the satisfaction of the triune God in and of himself. So of course he would create. Of course it would be outward because that's who he is. It gets bigger and better. He's outward. And then over all creation, he says, ooh, I'm gonna make this one creature unique because in this creature, I'm going to place in them 
a spirit that can be a receptacle of my spirit and be brought in, as we see in the John 17 prayer, into this oneness that we have, that he, she would be filled by this loving waterfall and overflow it like a second waterfall. And the second waterfall has to overflow it and go and subdue the earth and fill it with the glory of this triune God. We're, we're made to be these second waterfalls that just... That's what you're designed for. You are designed for the outward glory of God to flow in you, through you, and out of you. You are designed to be every bit as outward as the triune God is outward. That's what you're designed for. You want to flourish as a human being? Let go of you and be an open outward conduit of the rushing eternal waters. Do you want to go against your design? Start building bricks. Don't let that water overflow. Just, just build higher and higher bricks so you can capture all that water for yourself. Don't let it overflow to others. Just, just give me some of that. And Paul's saying, my, 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 my flesh wants to say, Paul, man, that is just the most masochistic, self-denying Ugh, detestable message. I, what, I gotta die to myself? That smells like, ugh. But my spirit says, oh, that's, that's what I'm made for. Oh, the irony that I keep trying to dam up this waterfall to not let it go to anyone else when I've actually been designed to flourish by being a living sacrifice. It just flow through me. Oh, that I be crucified with Christ, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? Those aren't words for a funeral. Those are words for life. But our flesh says, oh. Why does our flesh say that? Well, we go back to Genesis. And we see in Genesis 3, when an Adam and Eve took the fruit, and they were warned, the day you do that, you would die. And Satan's like, you won't die, you'll become like God. Before they do that, we've got this Garden of Eden where everything is perfectly, purposefully designed to reflect the outward flow of God. I love the word universe, right? This infinite diversity in all creation throughout the universe, and yet it's all unified. You see that language throughout Genesis 1. It's all different, yet the same, coming together for one purpose, right? Smells like three in one, multiplied across the universe, day, darkness with light, day with night, sky with land and sea, animals, vegetation, Man, woman, different, unified, different, unified, different, unified. Animals, species, different, unified, universe. It's flowing 
throughout the edges of the universe, this triune God, this character. And here we are, the humans, to, to subdue it and fill it with his glory. And the humans say, no, 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 no. I don't want to be outward. I don't want to be the second waterfall. I want, I want this for me. I want to be inward. And the second Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, choose to disobey their own design, their spirit dies. The Holy Spirit that energizes, that fills them, the language we see throughout Acts, being filled with the Spirit, this eternal, this eternal well that we have in each of us that was to be filled is now empty because the only thing that can fill it is the Holy Spirit, and now that relationship is broken. And since Genesis 3, we've inherited this flesh that thinks, get what you can for yourself. Even if the people have taken everything else from you, whatever last little thing you can handle for yourself, grab it for yourself. And it's just ironic. I was thinking about even how the religion Islam tries to describe heaven. It's your flesh will be eternity filled, <laughs> eternally filled through. They describe it as endless banquets and 70 virgins. It's, it's this eat all you can, the best of foods, and have all the sex you can. And maybe your flesh says, hey, that sounds like a good heaven. They're saying, go look at the billionaires' lives that are living that way right now. They're not, they're not filled, they're empty. The flesh lieth. <laughs> Be deceived no longer. You weren't designed that way. You were designed for this outward flow, and every time we turn inward, we're going against our own design. And that's when Paul's saying, not as this masochistic prayer of, I'll just live a miserable life, so I'm just, I want to consider everything I have as garbage so I can gain Christ, because woe is me, I'm now a Christian, and I have to give everything up. He's saying, I've tasted life, and I'm tired of all these deceptive things in this world that keep distracting me from Jesus. Take it away, because I want more of you. Oh, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I want that. C.S. Lewis would say, if I find in myself a desire nothing in this world can satisfy, I must be made for another world. Pascal described that as a God-sized vacuum. Jeremiah and Ecclesiastes described it as you have eternity in your hearts. You have an infinite need in your hearts. You know where you're dissatisfied right now. You know where you're just done with that in life. You know which relationships have you exasperated. You know which physical ailments have you exasperated. You know which burdens in your life have you exasperated. You know which financial burdens have you exasperated. You know which temptations that you keep giving into that never satisfy have you exasperated. And let you ironically think, oh, if I could just get that fixed in my life, then it'll be better again. 
And this is where today I hope you surround yourself with Richard Wormbrandt. Stephen. Paul. The apostles. Don't, don't surround yourself with other Americans who look like on Facebook they're living the dream and you're not. Jesus came to make us free from the deceptive flesh that tries to build bricks to st- keep the waterfall for yourself. And what he's really trying to say is you were designed to be a, a poured out offering. And when you live that way, you're going to taste life. Your death will begin to be, begin, begin, become the beginning of your life. He's not calling you to misery. He's calling you to the life you were designed for. An outward God who created everything intentionally in all creation to be outworded. Don't give in to the deception that the inworded is what I need. So when I talk to the parents, I'm talking about there's God. He creates out of the overflow of himself. There's humans. They're over creation, and yet humans fall because they turn inward. And then I say, oh, that was just Genesis 1 to 3. <laughs> the rest of the Bible, paralleled by the rest of history, is this outward, rushing, waterfalling God now overflowing our rescue. And our rescue would be to rescue us from ourselves. Those trials in your life that are cutting you so deeply, those trials in your life that really create this dissatisfaction of where you are right now, what if those very trials were your road to restoration? Stop looking at it as woe is me. If I didn't have this, my life would be good like those other people on Facebook and start saying, this is the very road I needed. I think it's interesting in Jeremiah. That's where I've been hanging. I've been hanging out with Jeremiah in the mornings this past week. Jeremiah, he's been telling them, if you don't repent, we're going to Babylon. And then it happens. They don't repent. So they're going to Babylon. I, I just picture, you know, it, it's, they're, they're, they're tied, they're chained, and they're going on this road to Babylon. And God says through Jeremiah, as you go, put up markers. Put, put up markers to mark your path. Because this will be the same road you come back on. The road of your discipline, the road of of, of your, your difficulties is the same road that will be your restoration road when you're back to Israel. And then he goes on for the rest of the chapter to say how good that restoration will be. Is it not interesting? Those tough roads you're you're on right now are the very roads that are going to take you to your restoration in Jesus Christ. He causes all things for the good of those who love him are called according to his purposes. Your tough road is your road he has designed since before the foundations of the world to walk you, walk with you to your restoration in him. Because then like Wormbrandt, you can say, you take all these things from me You're making me nothing. 
and waterfalls start flowing through me again. Powerfully remove me. May I decrease and you increase. And this road of difficulty, may it be the actual road of repentance, redemption, and restoration. Restoration, restoring you to what you as a human were designed to be before Adam and Eve ever turned inward. You are freed this morning to be outward. And when you let go, that outwardness of the triune God through you is exactly what you were designed to do in the first place. So you have these four frames. You got God, always been, who he is. He overflows creation. Humans mess it up, turn inward. That's the fall. And since Genesis 3, there's this road of restoration that overflowing Jesus is jealously trying to restore his creation, and it happens through our repentance based on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And repentance is, I'm sorry of trying to be, always trying to grab a little bit left for me. I'm sorry. Take that away from me. Free me like Jesus to just be a conduit of your Holy Spirit to do whatever you want. And when we start doing that as a people together in our churches, homes, and friendship, that's when revival starts happening. And we're going to fill this altar of people just laying down, confessing sins, getting right with God, and getting right with each other. And just let the outward waterfall flow. So my encouragement to you this morning is, where am I? And where are you still putting little bricks to try to keep this waterfall because we got to keep a little bit left for ourselves? And where do we just need to confess it and let it go? And say, all right, all right. I want to live in my design. I will die so that you can flow powerfully through me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I, I bless your name for scripture because if we didn't have you specifically telling us this, our flesh is telling us the exact opposite. Lord Jesus, I I pray you would bring to light every piece of self-centeredness in us and we would confess it to you and confess it to at least one other person. Bring it to light, break the strongholds of flesh and Satan in our lives and unleash the tsunami of the overflowing waterfall triune God's glory in our lives and in our church. Unleash yourself, holy, almighty, selfless, generous God. Amen.